0: Welcome back to the Leaders of Learning podcast. It's now 10 days into the new year. How has it been for you? Are you able to stick to your resolutions? Well, I've stopped making resolutions some years ago and instead I took the time to do a personal annual review. So, with my personal annual review, I reflect on what went well for the year what didn't go well, and what I wish to accomplish in the year ahead. Last year, I've launched this podcast show, not knowing if anyone would be interested in the topics or interviews that I cover. I launched the show with the aim to help people, teams, and organizations in their lifelong learning journey. My hope is that the show will encourage everyone to find ways to continue learning and growing outside the traditional classroom. The Leaders of Learning podcast has come a long way since its launch. We have reached over 100,000 unique downloads from listeners in over 28 countries around the world. Who would have thought a small voice like mine could have such a global reach? Thank you so much for your support in 2018. For 2019, I wish for this podcast show to have a greater reach to more listeners around the world and to be able to interview interesting guests on the show. So if you have a topic or a guest you'd like to recommend for the show, do drop me a line at ling at culturespark.co, that is L-I-N-G at C-U-L-T-U-R-E-S-P-A-R-K dot C-O. We are halfway through season two of the Leaders of Learning podcast. If you have enjoyed and benefited from the show so far, please share your favorite episode with a friend or colleague and help them in their lifelong learning journey. For the first episode of 2019, I've invited Tamor Nobili, a veteran broadcaster and journalist, to speak about questions and answers. So happy first anniversary to the Leaders of Learning podcast. Have a happy new year, have a blessed 2019 filled with lots of love, light, and happiness. On with the show.
1: Kahneman suggests that actually most people, unless they're in a particular situation, most people respond to questions on an emotional level and try not to think too hard about it because that's the hard work. The importance of questions is to open a conversation. but The real art of conversation is listening to the answers.
0: You're listening to the Leaders of Learning podcast, the podcast that explores learning in the 21st century with educators, leaders, and entrepreneurs from around the world. I'm your host, Ling Ling. I'm also the founder and director of Spark Learning Solutions. We help to build thriving organizational cultures and create effective intercultural collaboration through education, coaching, and consulting. Asking questions can be powerful. Questions can help us gain knowledge, unlock insights, drive us to explore the unknown, and many more. Asking the right kinds of questions is hard, and it requires experience and skill. In an age of instant information, it is all too easy and quick to find an answer, although it is not necessarily the right one. So how do you know what is the right question to ask? How would you know if the answer received is the right one or an answer based on what you want to hear? Joining us is Taymor Nabili, a veteran journalist and broadcaster, and CEO of a startup online news called The Signal. With a career spanning 30 years, Nabili has covered news in more than 30 countries across Europe, Asia, and the Americas for various news channels such as Al Jazeera, the BBC, CNN, CNBC. CNA, and
2: Channel 4 News. Hi, Taymor. Welcome to the podcast show. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Thank you for making the time to join us today. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about yourself?
1: Sure. I am a career journalist. I began in print in London in the mid-80s. I've progressed into radio and then into television over the course of my career and spent most of the time on television for organizations like CNBC, BBC, Al Jazeera, and most recently, Channel News Asia here in Singapore. Most of what I do is straight news, politics, and current affairs. I spend a lot of time doing business news. And most of what in, I engage with and enjoy most. And what I'm trying to do in the future is is interviews. I like talking to people. I like hearing opinions. I like trying to uncover ideas and thoughts and inspirations in other people's work.
2: Oh, that sounds fantastic. That's what I do with my podcast too. And I enjoy speaking with people, (laughs) asking questions, learning from them. And that's the joy of conversations, I believe.
1: Yeah, it's fun. I mean, why would you not want to spend your day talking to interesting people? Not not that I'm an interesting person. I don't know why you want to talk to me. Uh, (laughs) From from my perspective as a a working journalist, you know, one of the biggest joys of being in this industry is the access it gives you to such a diverse range of people. Uh, Not all of them are interesting, but uh, enough of them are to make it a really great thing to do.
2: Who is the most interesting person that you've interviewed before?
1: I was afraid you're going to ask me that. It's kind,
2: of,
1: it <laughs> it's kind of it's it's the obvious question i guess in the light of what i've just said but I'm, i never have a good answer for it because i've been doing this for 25 years and and i must have interviewed tens of thousands of people and i don't remember a fraction of them obviously the ones that you would think would stick out would be the more interesting ones or the more high profile ones but actually high profile interviews i find are generally damp squibs when you're dealing with very important people or very famous people, they usually have something to sell, whether it be an opinion, a political perspective, or a product. And they sell it in a very rote and formulaic fashion. And they've been trained to deliver things in a certain way. They've been trained to approach media in a certain way. And so those interviews all tend to blend into a very generic and uh, uninteresting sort of situation. The, The interesting ones tend to be the people who are subject matter experts or who've been in remarkable situations at at strange times and who are telling stories of personal experience or have uncovered great ideas that change the way you think. Uh, And I come across lots of those kinds of people and none of them, or very few of them, ever get the kind of acclaim or or media attention that they deserve. Uh, You know, they live in universities, they live in think tanks, they're walking down the street in the middle of a natural disaster or or a great global event. I was wandering the streets of New York after 9-11 doing reporting. And, you know, you talk to some of the firemen that were involved. You talk to some of them, just the people who were on the spot at the time, as I was, and get opinions from people. And and those are the the kind of conversations that are just as interesting as the ones that make international news.
2: Okay. So as part of conversations. Of course, we don't just share our opinions, share our stories, but as an interviewer yourself, you need to ask questions. And I believe that questions can be very powerful because when a person is posed a question that they've not been posed before, it makes them think, it makes them dig deep down into their intellect to come up with something to answer your question. So why do you think questions can be so powerful?
1: I don't want to sort of Contradict you. Questions are an important tool and an important element in, in how we approach the world. But from the perspective of doing interviews and from the perspective of trying to understand what people think and how they conduct their lives, I would say questions are not the only thing to focus on. Okay. Answers are the thing that you focus on. Let, let me approach this in two ways. Now, the way you framed it there, you talked about how questions prompt people to think and elicit reactions and, and thoughtful responses, that is not always true. Oh. One of the really interesting trends of my generation that has emerged in my generation is, is the science of behaviorism. And the book that everyone refers to these days as kind of the the tipping point in really getting this stuff into the mainstream was Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it.
2: Yeah, I've read the book. It's quite a difficult book to read. <laughs>
1: Well, uh, in which case, you know that his proposition, to really simplify a very complicated topic, one of the propositions that's relevant to our conversation, is the idea that that people do not think when they answer questions. They reach for what they think is the most appropriate answer in the circumstances. Uh, And that is based on their system one thinking, which is their emotional reaction. So if you say to somebody, what do you think about the decision of a certain politician? Their response will actually not be, what do I think about the decision? But what do I think about that person? Or what do I think about the situation in which I find myself as a consequence of what's happening? Right. The question, Kahneman suggests that actually most people, unless in a particular situation, most people respond to questions on an emotional level and try not to think too hard about it because that's the hard work. If there is an available heuristic, whereby they can answer your question, satisfy your expectation, and sound reasonable about it, they'll take the easy route out. And mostly that, that involves not thinking too hard about the oh. question. So it's, it's kind of an interesting behavioral bias that, that everybody has. But then put that into the context of serious political or business conversation. That's a different thing. Now, these people, do think very seriously. But again, what you're getting from them is not necessarily an answer to your question. What you're getting from them is a pre scripted party line that's been prepared by their comms team and designed to project to the image that they want to project. It's a long winded way of going around and saying, you know, the importance of questions is to open a conversation. But the real art of conversation is listening to the answers, because that's where you begin to divine the real motivation behind the way they're answering the question. And that's where you can then begin to ask follow-up questions that probe those areas that their first question failed to answer. And then you can start finding where their their points of discomfort and their points of real opinion lie.
2: How do you formulate prompting questions? Because I know some people, they require the extra preparation beforehand with questions and some people can't really think on the spot to ask those kinds of important follow-up questions so that you can dig deeper into what, like what you say what makes the other person feel uncomfortable what are the steps that we can take to learn how to do that
1: again it depends on your circumstance i think for one experience is, is a major determinant of how you can handle these situations so when you say you know some people can't think quickly enough to answer the follow-up question well you know that's a skill you develop uh, through practice it's not a matter of intelligence or innate ability. It's a, it's a matter of practice, experience, and understanding. But step one, very clearly, particularly if you're dealing with prepared interview subjects, politicians, business people, those people that are put in front of you by PR companies or, or other. So this, the, the first step is, is to just to research what they've said before. Because as I say, most people will have a certain line that they want to tell you. And it's very easy to go through a series of previous interviews and find out what they have said in the past, and and you'll notice a certain amount of repetition in what they've said in the past. And then you begin to understand what messages they want to get across. And so the first step in preparing questions is to allow them to sort of get that over, but also make sure that it doesn't become the dominant theme of the interview. So you need to know who they are and what they want to tell you, uh, and allow that process to be a, a smaller part of the overall interview if that makes any sense. So once you know what their position is at the beginning, then you can begin to probe the depths of the position and what underpins the position in the first place. So it's important to have a certain amount of background in the subject, the person, and the subject at hand. And from that point, then you can begin to look for those areas that they're trying not to answer. So when you ask them a particular question, and you think you've worked hard to make it specific and pointed and relevant and difficult to avoid, inevitably they will have found a way to avoid the specific and difficult question and they'll they'll answer it in a certain way. So your job is to then look at that answer and say, yes, but the part that you're avoiding is the part that I'm interested in.
2: Doesn't it make the interviewing or the questioning process uncomfortable? Because if you're going to ask someone who questions in which they're not willing to answer for some reason or another, doesn't it make... The interview feel uncomfortable people can get quite emotional because even if it's not in a formal interview if you ask someone a question that they're not willing to answer people can just blow their top off and does does that ever happen to you
1: all the time <laughs> are you uncomfortable now with the way i'm answering that
2: no no i'm just curious
1: <laughs> i'm curious how do you um, handle how do you the, handle the answer, that because, because i yeah the answers i'm giving you are not necessarily perhaps what you what you what you were asking. And in the same mm-hmm. way that I said, I'm answering the questions that I think are relevant in the context of this conversation, not necessarily the question that you've asked. So I'm sort of proving my point in a certain way
2: mm-hmm. by
1: doing, doing what I suggest. Uh, but, but to answer your question, yes, of course, they make it, it uncomfortable. And, and the answers that I'm giving you in this context are very much the answers of a news person, uh, somebody whose role is to go in front of people who have a responsibility to the public and hold them to account for that responsibility. So being uncomfortable is part of the territory. Making sure that people don't simply parrot what is convenient for them is part of the territory. That's part of the job. That's not necessarily, again, answering your question in its general sense, as in what is the value of questions. So we have to define the, the, the context in which we're talking. So the answers I've given you are applicable to the news context. If you're talking to somebody and you're trying to extract information, understanding truth from them regarding a certain thing that is a applicability and relevance to a public audience, and that's the context of the answer I gave you. That's not always the appropriate context and therefore the approach is not appropriate. Take a look at someone like Oprah, for instance. Oprah is a consummate questioner. She will sit in front of people and not make them uncomfortable. And as a consequence, Get the sort of answers that someone like me and the approach that i've outlined would not be able to get and and that sort of speaks to to the point the underlying point of your last question. People do when they're uncomfortable clam up and it becomes harder to get information from them. but in the dynamic of a news interview sometimes it's hard to get around those those situations but yes, if you're sitting in a in a studio and you're having an interview about somebody's latest book or somebody's experience in, in the context of a, of a disaster or something like that, then your approach would be completely different. And someone like Oprah, I think, is, is much maligned as, as an interviewer because you know, what she does doesn't change minds or create political action or anything like that. But it generates an incredible amount of support and understanding and empathy and depth of experience that the sort of political interview will never reveal. So these are different circumstances. So the second answer to your first question is, you know, how do you formulate a question is, take account of the circumstance in which you find yourself, the person to whom you are chatting, what information you're trying to reveal, and how the other person responds. So these are all relevant contextual issues that you have to think about before you get into the interview situation.
2: But doesn't that also take into consideration the kind of answer you want to elicit from the interviewee too? So it's not just the context, but the as an interviewer, the kind of questions you ask, you also want to get a certain answer from them. It's, isn't that the case as well? Like for the example Oprah you've given, it, she... Does her approach is because she wants to dig deep into the emotions, to the stories of whoever she wants to interview, their motivation and inspiration. And that's the branding that she's offered out there, someone to go to if you want to find inspiration, if you want to learn more about yourself and so on. But your what you want to get from your interviewees are, are different things. So in a way, because of both your motivations are different, therefore the way you ask questions are also different.
1: Oh uh, yeah. That, Can I say it that way? Okay. Well, I mean, that's essentially the, the point I'm trying to make is that how you approach these things uh, depends upon what you're trying to elicit and, and the person in front of you. But bear in mind also that, you know, the, the techniques are not always the, the primary consideration. I mean, Oprah, Oprah, even though she wants to elicit different information to what I, as a news interview, would want to elicit, you know, her guests might be just as uncomfortable or awkward about answering some of her questions as well. Mm-hmm. So the way in which she presents them is something that she has to think about. You know, people go on her show knowing that that's her agenda, but, you know, not all of them necessarily want to say, give a, a completely transparent answer to, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> for, the, for the sake of argument, why did your marriage break down? <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> what what happened in that emotionally stressful situation? So, you know, how how she approaches it and puts it is going to be very much at the forefront of her mind as well. The difficulty, just to go back to the question you posed a moment ago, I mean, how do you approach these things? These are all elements that you have to take into account and and judge according to the circumstance and the individual that that you're dealing with.
2: Okay. If you've met certain interviewees who are not willing to answer questions, do you have any techniques or strategies to get some kind of answers from them? And what what do you do? even though you've done all your research and your background and stuff, but people are not, I mean, the people you're interviewing are not willing to answer questions.
1: It, that's the hardest thing of all and the most frustrating thing of all that there've been many, many times, in fact, probably the majority of times when you're dealing with seasoned politicians or business people where you walk away from the interview saying, well, I, I didn't get anything there, that the answers that I got from them are the prescripted party line positions that they wanted to get. And sometimes there's there's not really anything you can do about that. The, the media training industry now is a multi-billion dollar industry. There are innumerable people who spend all their time training other people how to dodge questions put to them by journalists, and some of them become very good at it. So sometimes you just have to walk away and say, that person was extremely skilled at dodging the issue and... and not answering questions.
2: Yeah. You've had many, many years of working in journalism and across many different cultures. And we've talked about the context and the situation and all that. So I just want to ask from your observation and your years of experience, do you see any difference in interviewing people from like, say Southeast Asia as compared to Western countries, as compared to the Middle East? Do you you notice any difference in the way you have to frame your questions? or how people from these
1: different cultures answer your question? Yes, I do. All I can offer is anecdotal observation at this point. I, I'm, I'm not sure if there's any scientific study into this specific context. There are plenty of scientific studies as to people's cultural situations and behaviors that, that are, are relevant to this, but what I, you know, my observations are only mine. Uh, and there are, two, there are two things I would speak to here. Firstly, news culture, and secondly, the broader culture that underpins how journalism operates in in that society. So the news culture in the UK, where I where I did my initial journalism training, it is brutal, as you know. Perhaps the the greatest example of that is is the show Hard Talk, which was originally conceived and started in in the BBC by a friend of mine, Tim Sebastian, who who was a a consummate interviewer. He did an enormous amount of work in framing not only his questions but the circumstance in which he put them he would make sure that he had reams of data points of evidence of surveys of other opinions and comments from other people that he would then put in front of the interview guest and allow them to address them and he he was very meticulous in in how he approached that thing but underpinning it as the title suggests was the attitude that I'm going to be extremely blunt with you, and I expect you to take it and respond in a meaningful fashion. You know, the show has become, I think since then, has become actually even more extreme. I mean, Tim's approach was very calm and and dispassionate. Now it just seems to be a, a fairly common template for people to sit there and say, I'm going to ask you the most often obnoxious question that I possibly can just to get a response. And perhaps the framing is not quite as it used to be. So that's that's very much a Western perspective. The politicians and the business people are considered to be fair game. And if you put yourself in the public space and claim to represent the people, then you need to answer to them. Now, obviously, that speaks to a not only a journalistic culture, but also a general culture that is much more direct and holds those in power in much lower esteem than perhaps they do in Eastern cultures. And, you know, one of the things that Lee Kuan Yew always said about the press was, nobody elected you, so don't pretend that you're the voice of the people. He, Lee Kuan Yew, mm-hmm. you know, presented himself as a democratic politician and said, I will answer questions, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the media, the elected representatives of the people to put those questions. So he, he didn't, he had a completely different opinion, how the media and the responsibility and the, the ethical position of the media in that conversation. And so when, when you do journalism in Singapore, you, you operate within that cultural context. And so you can't go up to a Singapore politician and do what Stephen Sacker does now on hard talk, even though a lot of people in Singapore have, have come to me and said, I wish you could do a hard talk in Singapore. I, I think a lot of the population are getting to the stage where they would like to see some rather more robust conversation. But to answer your question, no, it, it's not the same. There are, there are very different cultural and professional standards at play in places like Singapore, in places like, uh, well, around most of Asia, than there would be in, in the US or Europe.
2: That's very interesting, because I would have thought that in a democracy, journalists would be the representative of what people would want to hear, at least. They would be the one who be asking questions and keeping people in power accountable for what they do, and at least, you know, try to explain to the people why they do what they do. So it's interesting that, Lee Kuan you gave that kind of comment. <laughs> that journalists are not elected by the
1: people. He was he was very clear about it, and, and you can see that that opinion and that attitude is, is very clearly expressed in in the way the Singapore media behaves. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that he's wrong, that you're right, that for most people the idea that the press are there to act as the fifth estate is, is something that has been handed down from the Western tradition of journalism. And this is going to sound very strange coming from a Western journalist, but (laughs) I think it's an interesting conversation that we should be having that we have stopped having.
2: Why have we stopped
1: having? Well, I think to a large extent because journalists have drunk their own Kool-Aid and decided that they are, in fact, these crusading ethical standard bearers who need to behave as they see fit and politicians should not interfere with that. But that it's it's an interesting conversation that, that just isn't had. I mean, I think, I personally, I also think Lee Khan w- was perhaps a little bit extreme in, in his positions. I mean, he the other thing that he always said was that the government must have control over three things, the army, the treasury, and the media. And he was never shy about saying that control of the media is part of... The process of governance. Uh, And that speaks to an authoritarianism and a refusal to respond to public demands that uh, I think probably is a little bit too far the other way. But I think there is a conversation to be had that says, who did elect the media? Uh, And some of the people that present themselves as journalists and standard bearers for the public, perhaps uh, don't really merit the status that allows them to claim that kind of position. Mm,
2: That's really interesting. Okay,
1: that's
2: very, very interesting because I've only moved to Singapore about five years ago and it was, I think, three or four years ago where Lee Kuan Yew passed away, if, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. so I hear different views about the former prime minister, or the late prime minister. Some people adore him and some people just have different emotions when you mention that kind of, when you mention his name. So I'm just curious to find out since I'm not from Singapore. <laughs> Even though I've lived there for a while, a lot of things still I still don't understand, really.
1: Yeah, well, like I say, I mean, I, I think Singapore media is a little behind the cultural trend insofar as they do still tend to be a little reticent and a little too deferential to the powerful. But equally, when I began my journalistic career, maybe maybe the most high profile figure in British media was a chap called Jeremy Paxman. I don't know if you if you're aware of him. Yeah. Yeah, um, I know. And I grew up and I started my journalistic questioning, path of questioning, along the lines that he espoused. And, and, and his mantra, he was once asked, what do you think when you sit down in front of a politician? Uh, and he said, there's only one thing I think when I go in, into an interview, and that is, why is this bastard lying to me?
2: <laughs> why does he have that mantra?
1: Well, that was, the, you know, like I say, that in, in Western media terms, that, that is the role that the, the media plays. You go in there to uncover the truth, and the role of the powerful is to hide the truth at the expense of the, of the general public. That's the attitude. Over the years, I've, I've come to realize that that sort of combative questioning, that, that directly upfront accusatory tone doesn't always elicit the kind of answers that you either want or that actually illuminate the situation in any meaningful way.
2: Okay. So that's why in Singapore, the approach is very different, because if you take that combative approach as what Jeremy Paxman espouses, it wouldn't work at all.
1: Uh, no, you'd probably end up behind bars, huh? <laughs> as, as as some people in Myanmar and Cambodia re- have recently found out.
2: Yeah, I saw on Reuters that there are two journalists from the BBC, or I can't remember where it is. They've been in jail for almost a year for asking questions about the
1: Rohingya refugee crisis in Thailand also there is a culture of not fear but certainly caution um, amongst journalists as to, as to how they go about their work and you know these, these are important and relevant questions in the context of what you're talking about but uh, how you approach those things is a very live conversation how you ask questions is a very live and relevant conversation
2: yeah. So it's not just the words that you put into a question, but how you ask it, the circumstances and who you ask it to will elicit very, very different responses. Mm-hmm. Either people will be open to share like in Oprah's situation, or if it's a politician who's been you know, pushed too many buttons, might send you to jail instead. Yeah. What do you see is the future of journalism in Singapore? Because I think before we start recording, we Talked a little bit about this, and I'd like to get
1: your perspective on that. Um, the future of journalism, or the future of the, the media industry.
2: Media industry, yes.
1: Again, this is a very interesting question. I mean, one media corp went to their new twenty-four hour format a few years ago, and they adopted the tagline "Understanding Asia," and the original context of that was the. Expressed desire to become a more regional broadcaster and start sharing information in the ASEAN region. I was at the time very engaged with that idea. There isn't a voice of Asian media. Of course, it's a very, very diverse and multicultural region, but there isn't a, a newspaper or a television station that is homegrown that someone in New York can pick up and say, you know, I wonder what the opinion is on the other side of the world about whether it be the trade war with China, whether it be Narendra Modi's latest uh, attempt to control the money supply, there is nothing that really presents an Asian perspective on global affairs in any large-scale way. And, and Channel East Asia sort of began to approach that question and try and present themselves as perhaps somebody who could begin that effort. That impetus seems to have died off a little bit, but I think that space is still wide open. And I hope that in the future, somebody with enough money, because that's what it's going to take, and enough willpower to ride the problems that come along with starting a journalistic operation, uh, will be able to, to pull something together that balances out what is really a global Western-centric narrative that, that we're all subjected to these days. So to answer your question, what is the future of media in Singapore? I have no idea at all, and I don't think anybody has. Not only do we have an industry that is being digitally completely disrupted, but we also have a, an industry that in the broader cult- cultural context of Asia doesn't really have an identity or a champion or a home. So I'm hoping that certain things will begin to coalesce, and eventually as Asia becomes the dominant force in global economics and politics, then we'll we'll begin to have some kind of a journalistic platform that expresses the value systems and the the political priorities that come from this part of the world. But at the moment, I'm not seeing any of that happening.
2: That's very interesting because I've always thought watching only Singapore TV shows that Channel News Asia is uh, sort of representing at least Southeast Asian voices especially with the news that's been churned out. But you're saying that's kind of died down and there is... Well, no, new- I mean,
1: their, their, their agenda is, is Southeast Asian issues, for sure. Mm-hmm. But my, my point being... Asia as a whole. Well, who listens, for one? The, the audience for Channel News Asia is pretty much Singapore-focused. But who listens in the rest of the world? I mean, like I said, I, I don't know anybody in, in Washington, D.C., or London, or Paris, or anywhere else in the West who wakes up in the morning and says, right, let me me see what's happening at Channel News Asia or one of the other papers. I mean, for a long time, the South China Morning Post was sort of that organization that that performed that role to a certain extent. But even that, I'm not sure it occurs anymore.
2: Well, it'll be interesting to see what the future of media in Singapore will be like, uh, not just Singapore, but in Asia in general, to see who would take up that mental and say, oh, yeah, I'll be the voice of Asia, if not Southeast Asia, or certain region, regions of Asia.
1: Just I mean, just a quick follow-up on that. I mean, you said, as we were talking before we began the interview, uh, the other aspect of, of media in Asia is just the, the, way, the way it's presented and the tone. I mean, Singapore and most of Asia is moving very, very fast and changing fast, and so are their populations. They're not only better educated and more internationalized. They're also living in the age of social media, where social media is now a de facto part of our cultural experience. And the way they interact and the expectations they have of how they get their information, how they share their information, and what they think that the people who lead them should be doing is changing fast. Uh, And the media in Asia, again, still plays this deferential role to authority that I think the population is beginning to get a little bit frustrated with. I mean, I think the population would like to see that relationship between the media and the the powerful, to be a little less stilted, a little less deferential, and a little bit more two-way. But that's just my personal opinion.
2: It'd be interesting to see if the media has gone towards that direction, because from my point of view, and I consume a lot of digital content, I see that the people interact with social influencers more. And if there's a famous food blogger that talks about this new cafe, you see a massive queue at that that restaurant. I know these are not like groundbreaking news or something, but there's a lot of power with the digital media now and how people use that to spread, you know, on the ground kind of news.
1: Yeah, this is one of the big conversations that we're, that we're having right now, isn't it? There's nothing I can say here that will provide any great insight. I, you know, these forces are playing out in real time uh, and which direction they end up heading in is really up in the air. You know, we, we saw Malaysia trying to, under Najib, trying to enact this fake news law, which Mahathir is now trying to repeal. The initial responses have been slightly knee-jerk and predicated on the basis of old-school thinking and relationships. But how that conversation turns out is utterly open. I mean, it, it is a conversation happening in real time, and, and it I'm certainly not in a position to, to make any guesses as, as to how it will end up.
2: Yeah. But I think what, based on uh, the recent election in Malaysia, the biggest progress I see is the openness to discuss things and not to be reactive to certain opinions and think about, you know, how can I put this person in jail? So it's nice that even though things haven't resulted to something as yet, but people are more open to discussing and hearing different opinions. And I think that's a good first step.
1: Yeah, let's just hope that attitude takes root and becomes the norm.
2: Yep. Let's just hope. I would like to ask if any of our listeners would like to hone their skill of questioning or the art of conversation, what parting advice would you give to our listeners?
1: Ooh, that's a tough one. To be honest, I've never researched the idea of, of questioning an interview technique in any academic or thoughtful way. My... My path has been one of just experience, and, and perhaps I should have done. Perhaps I, I would have been a better interviewer if I if I'd spent more time thinking about <laughs> it. I would love
2: it. to listen to your experience because that's where <laughs> – at least you've done it. You've tried it. You know what works. The academic route doesn't necessarily work all the time in the real world. So based on uh, your experience.
1: Well, like I say, I mean, right now I'm very much of the mind – and perhaps it's my age, you know, but I, I've moved away from the, the Paxman hard talk, combat them – hit them until they until they bleed sort of approach to getting truth out of people and i'm much more engaged with the ideas of daniel kahneman and the the reality the understanding all of a sudden that the way we humans think is not logical is not the result uh, of process and logic and categorization and thought and analysis and understanding, 90% of the time it's pure emotion. We make up answers that seem right because that's, that's the easiest way out of the situation. I mean, the, the, the heuristic mm-hmm. that we all adopt is to say, I will respond to this question according to the information that I have, according to the feelings that I have about the situation, and according to what I think that the questioner will be satisfied with. Those aspects of, of human interaction to me these days, are very fascinating. And I think in the future, the people who, the interviewers and the journalists who begin to understand these kind of behavioral dynamics will be much, much better positioned to get decent answers and more insightful comments and conversations from the people they talk to.
2: So if I could summarize that, if you want to be better at conversations, better at asking questions, is to understand human behavior understand why people answer the way they answer and therefore with those answers you can you're able to formulate better questions to get to the truth to get to the depths of whatever topic that you want to discuss can i summarize it that way
1: i think all those things are are very valid in this context yeah I, i wouldn't say that that's the whole universe of what we're talking about but In the Mm -hmm. future, I think uh, the best interviews will start coming out of situations where people have applied that sort of thinking as part of their approach.
2: Excellent. As we're coming to the end of our podcast show, do you have any news you would like to share with our listeners about what's going on in your world or anything?
1: Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, in in the spirit of of having interesting conversations, I started my own website called thesignal.asia, in which I'm... Beginning to host conversations with interesting people, I hope about more i 'm gravitating back towards where I began my journalistic career, which is which is in the business realm um, and I want to talk to people about the disruption of digital technology, specifically blockchain and AI in the context of doing business, and particularly in the context of developing Asia. My concern right now largely is is around issues of climate i 'm very worried that the world that my son is going to inherit when he leaves university may be a lot worse than it might otherwise be. So, I'm, I'm really interested in how Asia's cities are developing and how we can use technology, blockchain, artificial intelligence to make sure that the future development in this part of the world is sustainable, is environmentally concerned, is done along the lines that prioritize human experience rather than profit.
2: Excellent. Thank you very much for your time, Tamar. Thank you for being on the show.
1: You're welcome. Nice talking to you.
2: Nice talking to you too.
0: That was Tamar Nabili, veteran journalist and broadcaster. We were just discussing about the power of questions. Highlights of this episode and contact details of our guest is available on our website at www.culturespark.co slash podcasts. That is www.culturespark.co slash p-o-d-c-a-s-t-s. In our next episode, we will speak to podcast host Sheena Yap Chan. She hosts a show called The Tao of Self-Confidence. We will be talking about how to build self-confidence. yeah, I would like to give a quick shout out to CastBox. CastBox is a podcast platform with 95 million unique podcast and audio content, as well as 15 million listeners from around the world. CastBox is powered by artificial intelligence, bringing you a greater range and greater variety of podcast and audio content. CastBox has decided to feature me on their platform. So go check it out and download their app on iOS and on Android. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or wherever you download your podcast. If you believe this podcast show will help a friend or family, please share this episode with them via social media or your podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Leaders of Learning podcast.